This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes and the studio in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A conservative legal firm is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to pause the federal student loan forgiveness program until pending court cases play out. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty filed the lawsuit on behalf of the Brown County Taxpayers Association, saying that President Biden does not have the constitutional power to forgive student loans. The case was first brought before a judge earlier this month, but was quickly dismissed because the law firm did not have standing to file the lawsuit. Will appealed that ruling, which was also dismissed. Now, Will is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case. The advocacy law firm also asked justices to immediately pause the program, which would bring financial relief to thousands of people with federal student loan debt. School districts across the state were bombarded with what police say were false school shooting reports. Channel 3000 reports that law enforcement in Milwaukee, Waukesha, Wisconsin Dells, Janesville, Portage, and Madison received calls today saying that there were active shooters in schools. The reports were false in all cases. The FBI is investigating the calls. For the first time in three years, the city of Madison is looking to hire both firefighters and EMTs. City officials say they have taken a new approach to hiring for these positions, including a streamlined interview process and the removal of U.S. citizenship requirements. Now, anyone with a legal right to work in the U.S. is eligible to apply to be a firefighter or EMT. Applications will be accepted through November 30th. Once again, Madison is in search of an independent police monitor. John Tate declined the position last week after being offered the job. Today, the city of Racine announced that Tate will be working as Racine's first violence prevention manager. The city's police civilian oversight board, which is tasked with hiring a monitor, will meet on October 27th to decide what to do next. After a two-year hiatus, Madison students will once again have access to free dental care. Celebrate Smiles, a mobile dental clinic, is operated by the nonprofit Access Community Health Centers. In the past, Celebrate Smiles either turned either a classroom or an office into a dental clinic, but now Celebrate Smiles has an RV outfitted with dental equipment. The Care Mobile will visit 21 MMSD schools throughout the school year and is currently stationed at Leopold Elementary. And now on to today's top stories. Despite fierce opposition from local activists, F-35 fighter jets will be coming to Dane County's Truex Field starting next year. Earlier today, an international coalition of over 200 organizations sent a letter to President Joe Biden calling for him to end the entire F-35 program. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has the details. An international coalition of anti-F-35 activists gathered virtually today, announcing an open letter calling on President Biden to end the manufacturing and training of F-35 fighter jets. 
The letter, organized by Code Pink, a national grassroots anti-war organization, is signed by over 220 organizations across the world, including dozens in Madison and Wisconsin. The letter calls on President Biden and members of Congress to end the F-35 program, remove the jets from residential neighborhoods, and end the sale of jets to foreign countries. This comes as F-35 jets are scheduled to bed down at Truax Field on Madison's north side in spring of 2023. The National Guard's 115th Fighter Wing, based at Truax, is one of the first units across the country to fly the F-35s, the latest version of the jets. But that bed down is coming despite immense community pushback. For years, activists have pushed back on the noise, pollution, and security of having the jets based on Madison's north side. According to the Air National Guard's own final environmental impact statement released in 2020, replacing the recently departed F-16 jets at Truax Airfield with F-35 jets will not come quietly. While the impact statement showed that around 2,700 people would be subjected to an average sound level of around 65 decibels, or around the volume of a vacuum, the report does not outline how loud the jets will be when landing or on takeoff. Speaking at today's press conference was Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. Ben & Jerry's is headquartered in Burlington, Vermont, where F-35 jets first touched down near a residential neighborhood in 2019, despite a similar level of community campaigning to stop the jets from coming. According to a 2012 environmental impact statement for the F-35 in Burlington, the noise level of an F-35 at takeoff is estimated at around 115 decibels, louder than a car horn and a rock concert, and just quieter than a siren. Prolonged exposure to noise over 85 decibels can cause permanent hearing loss. Exposure to noise above 120 decibels for more than half a minute can cause hearing loss. Cohen says that when the Jets came to Vermont, he created a plan to help residents know just how loud they would be. You know, the the extreme level of noise is a little hard to understand. You know, you, you can hear decibel numbers, but nobody really relates to it. So uh, we created a uh, mobile sound truck that replicated uh, the sound of the F-35, and we were driving it around, and, you know, the... The, the police call-in numbers lit up with uh, complaints from the community, and eventually I was arrested for violating the noise ordinance. So, so I mean, it showed that the level of noise was illegal, but the Pentagon gets, a, gets an exception. But the F-35 still landed in Vermont, where thousands of people lived within the noise-affected area, considered generally unsuitable for residential use by the U.S. Air Force. The letter points to a variety of health impacts of the jets beyond hearing loss, causing low birth weights in newborns, delayed speech development, and difficulties with concentration. Vicki Berenson with Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin was one of the speakers today. She said she's worried for the people who live around the airport when the F-35s land on Madison's north side in just a couple months. I know people who have sold their homes and moved away in anticipation of the F-35s arrival next year louder jets and we are told there will be 40% more flights than we have been subjected to with the F-16s that have been here for years. 
Not everyone has the means to move. The airbase is located in one of the only remaining affordable neighborhoods in Madison, so there's no place to go if you up and sell. Taxpayer cost of the jets is another issue mentioned in Code Pink's letter. The letter says that, as of today, the total cost of the country's F-35 project is $1.7 trillion, most of which stems from the cost of operations and maintenance over the next 66 years. The letter points to a report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, informally known as the Congressional Watchdog. The report, published in April of this year, says that even if the Department of Defense stays on schedule with the program, they are currently behind, one-third of the F-35 jets purchased by the department would not undergo full testing, meaning that those jets could potentially see even more maintenance and performance-enhancing costs over time. Speaking at today's press conference was Kathar Abdullah with the Yemeni Alliance Committee, a group of Yemeni organizers working to educate people on the Yemen war. Abdullah says that another issue with the F-35s is what could happen if the U.S. sells the jets to foreign countries. Over 300,000 Yemenis have been killed. One can only imagine what they would do with access to F-35s. For me, as a Yemeni-American who has lived in Yemen during the Saudi UAE military aggressive in Yemen, I can tell you firsthand how hard and painful it is to see your home reduced to ashes by Saudi airstrikes in a matter of seconds. Providing F-35s to Saudi Arabia and the UAE would potentially mean more airstrikes, indiscriminate airstrikes, airstrikes on homes, supermarkets, schools, farms, public roads, hospitals, soccer stadiums, school buses full of children, and other civilian places. Of the over 220 letter signees are at least 18 groups and businesses from Madison, with at least another 16 groups across Wisconsin. One of those groups is 350 Wisconsin, a Madison-based grassroots organization fighting to solve the climate crisis by 2030. John Greenler, executive director of 350 Wisconsin, says that he signed the letter because he thinks the letter shows how F-35s are both a local and global issue. There are a number of really clear examples of how uh, F-35s are a significant concern uh, in terms of climate change, and, and they raise from things that are very specific to us here in Madison, honestly, to uh, the way climate change is playing out on the uh, on the global arena as well. So it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it scales out uh, significantly. The first F-35s are expected to arrive in April 2023, with all jets slated to arrive in Madison by May 2024, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wucky Hout. Wayne County experienced more than $100 million in flood damage. At a press conference this morning, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced a new phase to the ongoing suck-the-muck efforts to reduce the chance of future severe flooding. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story. Earlier today, County Executive Joe Parisi took the podium at a small farm outside of McFarland, Wisconsin. Behind him, rolling prairie hills speckled with autumn trees, a reminder of just how large the suck-the-muck efforts stretch. Upon taking the podium, Parisi announced the purchase of 128 acres of land, totaling $925,000. This parcel of land is located near the town of Dunn, and will be the staging ground for the most ambitious phase of wetland restoration and flood control since 2018. 
This new phase will focus on phosphorus and sediment removal from the Door Creek watershed area, constructing additional flood storage and spring spawning habitats for fish, and enhancing the quality of wetland plants in the area. Flood storage areas are excavated stretches of land that can help regulate water levels during heavy rainfall by directing excess water away from natural water outlets such as streams and lakes. The new land purchase will be the site of new flood storage areas and expand wildlife habitats nearby. The Door Creek watershed area encompasses around 1,000 acres of wetlands which feed into lakes across the county and which contains some of the largest sediment and phosphorus deposits in the entire Yahara Lakes chain. The phosphorus deposits found in the watershed areas are a key ingredient in the formation of algae, which can block the flow of water into and out of lakes. This blockage can cause water levels to rise, especially after heavy rainfalls like those in August of 2018. Removing these phosphorus deposits, along with other sediment blocking the water flow through the Yahara Lakes, is crucial to prevent future flooding, says Executive Parisi. We can pipe the sediment, and usually what we do is use it as part of restoration efforts. We spread it, we seed it over, usually um, grow prairie on top of it, and that sequesters the, the phosphorus that's in that soil so that it's no longer available to run off when it rains. And so that will be all part of our continuing effort, not only to dewater and, 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 and dispose of the sludge, but do it in a way that enhances our efforts to revitalize the area. To date, 180,000 pounds of phosphorus and 56,000 pounds of muck have been dredged from the Yahara Lakes chain, and the results are showing. What we have seen is a constant reduction um, you know, in, in the amount of phosphorus running off our fields, and certainly our efforts to um, re- remove this, this phosphorus-laden muck through Suck the Muck is probably our most efficient, and, and, and both from a, a standpoint of cost and from the amount of phosphorus we can remove all at once um, from the system. Despite the strides made in both preventing future flooding and restoring wildlife and wetland habitats, changing weather patterns could alter the effectiveness of Suck the Muck. Parisi says that's another challenge. Frankly, you know, with the changing climate, we're having um, many more heavy rain events that sometimes counter some of our efforts because we, we have to deal with all of that runoff. So that's why in addition to things like Suck the Muck, we're investing heavily in things like prairie restoration. But changing climate and weather conditions aren't the only things that environmental planners have to take into account. The threat of spreading invasive species is also a concern, says Kyle Minx, with the Dane County Land and Water Resources Department. Uh, so as part of our investigation and planning that we'll be doing here in 2023 uh, is we're looking at identifying the different plant communities that are out there, especially invasive plant communities. And we want to be cognizant as we're doing our planning to make sure we don't um, spread those invasive species to the best of our ability, um, even though we know that there's a lot of natural processes that will carry invasives throughout the system too. Mink says that in addition to this new stage of the Suck the Muck effort, other avenues for flood storage are being investigated by the Dane County Land and Water Resources Department. $2 million have been included in the 2023 budget for this Suck the Muck phase. Planning and environmental studies will be conducted in 2023, with construction beginning in 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. It's now 6.21 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Dane County is not just looking to tackle climate emergencies through programs like Suck the Muck.
Another way the county is looking to prevent flooding is by simply restoring and protecting our many wetlands. Bill Leaders took a trip down to Falkwell Sugar River Wildlife Area to learn more about the county's efforts to restore wetlands for the newspaper Isthmus. Leaders sat down with WORT, WORT's Nate Wiggyhout to talk about what he found. So, Bill, just to sort of kick things off here, why don't you just give us a little bit of a quick overview of your story uh, that was in this latest paper edition of Isthmus? Yeah, well, it's about the various efforts that are being made in Dane County um, to protect wetlands as part of a larger strategy for combating climate change. Wetlands are very important in terms of um, fighting carbon change. They can sequester large amounts of carbon and improving uh, their ability to resist uh, extreme weather events is also part of the picture. There's a study that was done by the Nature Conservancy that found that um, about one, about 30%, about a third of the um, reductions in um, carbon that need to happen in order to meet uh, the goals to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of climate change can come from these nature-based solutions, the various things that you can do to improve and protect nature uh, to make it more resilient to climate change and to actually reduce the level of, of carbon uh, in the environment. Now you went down to the uh, Falkwells Sugar River Wildlife Area, which is actually down in my neck of the woods. I know that area uh, very well. So uh, what what were they doing over there, over at the uh, Falkwells area? Yeah, it's really cool. It's this like 350-acre parcel of land that is uh, a park in the process of being you know, d- developed. Um, they were putting in water control structures near the Sugar River, uh, which runs uh, through it, um, to better contain waters during a flood emergency. So there are these berms that are put up, and then there's a way that they can uh, trap the water at higher levels without it spilling off and creating a larger catastrophe. So these structures are being put into place. It's not a hugely expensive project, and it's done by uh, local work people, but it's an example of the type of thing that Dane County is doing strategically in order to you know, um, maximize the potential of the wetland to resist climate change and to combat it to uh, what's called carbon sequestration. And so now we'll get into uh, some of the other projects that are happening here around Dane County. We'll get into that in a minute here. But uh, first, I want to dig a little bit more into uh, the importance of wetlands and their importance here in Wisconsin specifically. Tell me a little bit about the wetlands here in Wisconsin and how that sort of relates to this idea of green infrastructure. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised that about uh, half of the wetlands that were originally in Wisconsin are still uh, around there's about five to six million acres of remaining wetlands in Wisconsin, down from about 10 million originally. So I think we're a little bit richer uh, in existing wetlands than uh, than what I would have, uh, have guessed before I looked into this story. Um, and you know there there are different levels of quality of, of wetlands. Some have been degraded and eroded and uh, and um, need restoration and improvement, uh, which is something that that can happen. Um, but uh, in many of the wetlands, some 70 to 80 percent of them in the state are in private hands. They're not public lands. It's uh, much easier, though, for uh, public agencies like Dane County to focus on the lands that are under its immediate 
uh, jurisdiction because they're county lands, county parklands and such. So that's the projects that I looked at um, were, were the Dane County um, public land projects. And so now a lot of this effort is being uh, uh, led, if I sort of understand this correctly, by the Dane County Land and Resources Department. Uh, what, what can you sort of tell me about them? Uh, well, it's the big county department that includes parks and uh, the public lands in Dane County. It's the Dane County Land and Water Resources Department. It's headed by Laura Hicklin, who I was able to speak with. They operate out of this beautiful building that I had not been to before on the city's southwest side. It's named after former Dane County Board Supervisor Ryman Anderson, who was a conservationist and, and environmentalist and a conservative who was on the Dane County Board for uh, many years. Um, it has a number of divisions in it which are devoted to various aspects of protecting the water and land resources of Dane County and its parks. Um, and with specific regard to this issue of um, carbon sequestration and nature-based solutions, there are a number of projects that have been undertaken, including the one at the Falkwells um, uh, Sugar River Park that I visited, but also at uh, Peasant Branch, uh, Peasant Branch <laughs> Conservancy uh, has just had a major wetland restoration project uh, completed that took several years and cost nearly a million dollars. Um, it's just opened up, the county has just opened up bids on a, a proposed 300-acre wetland restoration project at uh, Walking Iron Wildlife Area, which is in the village of Mazeming, a really cool park. Um, and there was just recently completed a green infrastructure plan for the headwaters of the Black Earth Creek. These are all uh, efforts that uh, are intended in part to make the environment more resilient to the impacts of climate change and uh, and help uh, minimize those impacts by the amount of carbon that is able to sequester. And so now sort of wrapping things up a little bit here, Bill, what what is sort of the biggest takeaway that you came across when sort of looking into this story here? Well, you know, climate change is this huge overarching problem, and there cannot be one solution. There cannot even be 10 solutions. There's just a whole bunch of things that have to happen at every level from the way that consumers consume or to the um, work that's being done to improve wetlands to, you know, uh, reducing the uh, amount of uh, carbon dioxide that comes from our use of automobiles. All of that has to be done. Uh, it, you just have to have a, you know, a, a, a full press of activity from all different quarters. And this is just one that I was not aware of, and it was local, and I just thought it was an interesting um, story to look into. Well, Bill, do you have just any any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us that you want uh, our listeners to know? Yeah, I enjoy talking to people who are involved in this work, the local government officials. It reminded me, I've been doing mostly national political writing for the last decade or so in statewide writing. This was a return to uh, writing that I did at Isthmus when I was news editor there for uh, a quarter century. And it, it just was nice to reconnect with the ordinary people who are part of local government, who are doing their part to um, make the environment a little better. And, you know, I find that they were very, um, they found it very fulfilling work. They regarded uh, their, their work uh, as important as it is. And it was just nice to make a connection with these people whose job is to um, make the, the world a little better day by day. 
I've been talking with Bill Leaders, a Madison journalist, president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, and author of the story on Dane County's efforts to fight climate change by protecting our wasteland by protecting our wetlands. You can hear his story in the latest paper edition of Isthmus, uh, or you can read it online at isthmus.com. Bill, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, an excerpt from Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting currently and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, host D Star brings us part one of a series with Cedric Page. Page is a businessman, entrepreneur, and television and radio host. In part one, he shares his keys to success and the power of mentorship. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with Cedric Page. Cedric Page, my man. How you doing, man? Doing pretty good. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, man. I'm blessed and highly favored. I had a wonderful night last night. Concert Mad Lit. Shout out to Rob D's for putting that on. And Corey Dub Dash. Cedric Page is, I'm going to just let y'all, it's a lot. He's, he's definitely a lot. I'm going to hand over the floor to him. So Cedric, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Cedric Page. I'm a corporate businessman, business owner, mentor, father, community activist, lover of pushing people I care about and young people forward in a positive way. Uh, that's pretty much the best way for me to describe who I am, a man that puts family first. And I live by the creed of honesty and loyalty. Uh, those are the things that mean the most to me. So where are you from? Originally from New Orleans. Grew up between New Orleans and Natchez, Mississippi. Went to, graduated high school actually out of North Natchez High School. Deep South went to... So you, did, uh, did you know Baby? <laughs> <laughs> I knew of Baby. Oh, you yeah. knew of him? I knew of Baby. I have family members that are good friends with Master P's father. I mean, when you New Orleans is a big city, but it's a big, small city. So you always end up knowing people from the peripheral. I met actually met Master P when he had a little jerry curl and he used to play basketball in the park uptown. Oh, yeah. All the time. So I had an opportunity to really see him as a baller and he could he was the real deal. Oh, he could hoop. Oh, that's an understatement. He was the real deal coming out of New Orleans. So also Avery Johnson. Right. Came out of New Orleans as well, went to Southern. I um, actually had an opportunity to uh, meet him on several different occasions as well. You know, growing up, I was always exposed to my grandfather having his own business, my father having his own business, family members being realtors, uh, family, be family uh, members being politicians, always active in the community and doing different things um, on my father's side of the family. My mom's side of the family, you know, we had really hard workers. My grandfather was really known in the communities, but, you know, we dealt with some of the same struggles as most people that come out of poverty and in the inner city. My, my mother had me when she was 16 years old. So, you know, I always say she wore her bruises out in the open. Uh, I watched her grow. I watched her become better. And, um, you know, I learned in the beginning some dysfunctional things, you know, but when you become a man, you learn to to shed things that you do as a child and to to push forward and, and correct some of the things or the mistakes 
of your past. But going back to your question, I've always been someone that's been business minded. I've always, when I was in middle school, I knew people love candy and pickles. So I used to keep candy and pickles in my locker and sell them for 50 cents and a dollar. So I definitely came out of that. And in the summers, I used to work for my grandfather. So I've been an electrician's apprentice, bricklayer's apprentice, um, laying sheetrock, doing carpentry work. So I grew up using my hands, understanding what hard work was, and also helping my grandmother in her part-time job where she had a house cleaving business and doing that. So I was always exposed to ways of, of earning and not necessarily depending on one thing or one person to create opportunities for you. From there, I had an opportunity from playing sports and different things to have an opportunity to go to UW-Madison. Got an invite to walk on, blew out my Achilles, and ended up just working for the university at the Towers, where I met my mentor, my first major mentor, which is Mr. Bill Levy. Uh, He's a very prominent, very successful real estate mogul here in Madison, owns several properties, but is just genuinely a good person and cares about people. And working for him at the Towers, I ended up managing the Towers. And, and the registry departments. So you're talking about two buildings, roughly two million each in terms of annual revenue coming in and some additional revenue coming from the food service programs and some of the summer programs that I had. And I was blessed to have a gentleman that believed in me enough to put a young African-American man in charge of, of these things or in a position of, of influence. And I learned from that. So in the summers, the towers used to turn into, and the region used to turn into senior summer school, where you had, and it was Jewish American dominant, but you had old federal judges, old stockbrokers from Wall Street. You had very successful people whom I had access to um, for advice and to push me forward. And I never forget a gentleman, Mr. Lee, would make me come down every summer in the morning and read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the LA Times. And he would teach me how to pick stocks. And he would talk to me about business all day, every day. And he was building on foundations that were laid by my grandfather and my father, Vernon Johns, my grandfather, Vernon Johnson, my dad, Vernon, my grandfather, Fred Page. They all laid the foundations to push me forward as a entrepreneur and as a corporate man, because, you know, education was something that was embedded in me in terms of as a key, not saying that it's the end all, but it's a key to opening up doors. Knowledge is power. And I was always taught that from a very very young age to always seek knowledge. That was what drove me. You want to know what drives me is the, I call it the unquenchable thirst. My cup is always that full. I'm always looking to quench this thirst and pushing myself forward and to never want to be mediocre. So I have a desire to always want to be the best. And if I'm not the best, I'm going to be one of the best. So with Mr. Levy training me in management, training me to run his food service program, training me to manage these properties, uh, it opened up a lot of doors for me professionally. Some of the doors that it opened for me were at the University of Florida, FSU. I had opportunities to go down to both of those universities for my affiliation with the Towers and UW-Madison and take over their housing programs and their food service programs, each one of those schools. But when I think back, I always said, you know, I turned them down because I always knew it was something more for me. I didn't want to just step into a position and know this is the job I'm going to have for 30 years. And, you know, there's ceilings to that, right? There's a lesson in that. Complacency. 
You know? Yes. What I mean by that is the feeling of everything is okay. I'm content. I'm good. So he never got complacent. He never felt that he was good. Like he said, his cup was always half empty. Well, my bruises out in the open. So don't get me wrong. I've made bad decisions. I've lived by the creed. I do what it takes to feed my family, make sure that I'm okay. And I've been blessed in my life to be surrounded by good people who advised me and kept me out of situations that would have gotten me in prison or in jail. But by no means do will I suggest that I didn't experience and see a lot of the same things, the killings, a lot of the drugs. I've seen all of those things, but in my celebration of my life, I don't want to celebrate and put focus on that. All of that is is who I am. I feel confident. I can go in any environment and be okay. A lot of us come from situations and circumstances that are desirable. How did you overcome that? How did you not get wrapped up into that? When I was younger, I was fascinated by all the money and things that, all the money that came from hustling. Okay, I was enthralled with it. My uncle used to take me on a corner every day and have me fighting. That was host D Star in conversation with businessman, entrepreneur, and host Cedric Page. You can find the whole conversation on the Oddity Box podcast. It's fall in Wisconsin, which means that you can expect drastic weather changes from one day to the next. On this week's fishy business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg hit the lakes to find out just how much fish really care about fall snowfall. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, weather's been a little bit a uh, little bit crazy lately, but how have the uh, how have the fish been biting? Well, the cool temps have got uh, have definitely cooled the lakes down uh, so much so to the point that the lakes are officially turned over now. So what that means is uh, all the warm water off that was on the surface is all cooled down all the way to the bottom, and fish are ready to start bulking up for winter. So some of the best fishing in the Madison chain is just ahead of us. And now on Monday there, we had a, a little bit of snowfall. And I, I sort of wanted to ask you, how does a how does a snowfall like that, like the first one of the season, uh, affect the fish in the area here? Do, do they get more active? Do they sort of hunker down a little bit? What happens there? Well, I mean, typically, you know, uh, when, when uh, storms come through like that you know it's it's typically kind of a low pressure system which generally you know just like rain in the summertime will will generally kind of put the fish in a good mood i don't think they uh really notice one way or another that there's you know snow hitting the surface or or anything like that but um you know the the cooler temps that bring that snow in are, are really the main factor that's like i mentioned cooling down the water and uh getting the fish hungry for winter all right, so then let's get into it. Lake Mendota, what's been happening? Well, Lake Mendota's been uh, some great fishing out there recently. The walleyes continue to move up shallow, so folks fishing the Tenney Park Breakwall and Warner Park Breakwall, University Shoreline have all been uh, getting some good walleyes off those areas, but those fish are also being caught still out on mid-lake humps and points. Uh, the pike, northern pike bite has uh, been great and continues to improve. I've heard about several fish in that 40-inch class uh, that have been caught recently. 
Um, panfish, as far as panfish go, um, the perch bite is, remains a little bit tough, but they've been finding some great bluegills out on, uh, on outside weed edges. All right, and now moving on over to Monona. What's been happening on Lake Monona there? Well, kind of the same deal. Perch and bluegills out on out on uh, the weed edges, uh, but also crappies and bluegills starting to move into shallow areas like uh, the Triangles and Monona Bay over there. Also, some good fish being caught off the Monona Terrace Wall over there. Uh, walleyes are also starting to move up shallow, although Monona isn't as doesn't have the same walleye population Mendota does. Uh, but Monona, what Monona does have is some really big muskies, and those fish have really put the feed bag on uh, in, a, in a major way the last couple of weeks, and, and now that the lakes have turned over, that action is just going to keep getting better and better. And we were talking uh, a little bit before uh, we were we started recording here. Uh, trout season is officially over, and that sort of means you know we're 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 getting ready for the turn of the seasons here to get into a uh, little bit more winter fishing. So so sort of looking ahead here, what can what can we sort of expect out of fishing over the uh, next couple months as things get a little bit colder? Well, uh, you know, with trout season closing, at least for me. Um, I turn my attention to the tributaries that flow in off Lake Michigan. Uh, there's a great salmon run that's going on right now. King salmon are moving upstream with some cohos right behind them. Some of those king salmon can reach 25 and even 30 pounds. Uh, so some real giants that you can hook into and hooking them into the, in, when you hook into one on a river uh, with that current, you're in for a fight of your life really. Um, but also uh, there've been some pink salmon that are coming up and those fish have a neat hump on the back, and but they run a little smaller, but they're kind of new to the salmon scene over there. So that's been an interesting development. Right behind all those salmon are going to be uh, some nice uh, lake-run brown trout that move up, and they, they'll be spawning in November. And then with them uh, come the steelhead, too. So a steelhead is a lake-run rainbow trout. And so those all those fish are starting to move up the rivers and are just a really fantastic time. If you can uh, bear the cold uh, and standing in some cold water, uh, you really can get into some fantastic fish. Uh, but then, of course, there's ice. Ice fishing is a, a big deal here in Madison. And, you know, usually by the end of November, first week of December, we start to see um, some pretty decently safe ice. So folks are, are excited for that. And we're, we're starting to put ice fishing stuff out here at the shop. I'm going to have to dig mine up out of wherever it is that I put it after last year. Well, then you, you were talking a little bit about uh, rivers and things like that. So let's look at a couple rivers. Let's start off with uh, the Yahara. What's been happening on that? Well, the Yahara River continues to uh, have fish showing up near uh, dam, dammed up areas. So if you're looking at um, the Stoughton area is a, a, a classic spot. Um, any of the areas where the water flows out of say Lake Wabisa and Lake Kiganza, there's a couple spillways there. Those are all great places to look for walleyes and white bass this time of year start to stack up there. And even uh, the occasional catfish can be caught on, on, on rivers like that. But uh, the Wisconsin River, it's kind of the same deal. Dams uh, generally are a great spot for a nice mixed bag of fish, but in particular walleyes uh, start to stack up behind dams. And uh, especially the Wisconsin River is very low right now. Um, and, so when the water gets low, all of those fish tend to congregate in deeper areas and around dams are definitely deeper areas. So uh, a lot of good fishing opportunities here in the fall. 
And I think we have time for just one more here. So let's, uh, we haven't touched on the Rock River in a little bit, I feel like. Have you heard anything going on on the Rock? I have, yeah. I mean, the the last few weeks we've had uh, some reports of some great catfish action between Fort Atkinson and up to the Jefferson Dam. And also at the Jefferson Dam, uh, some great walleyes have have been stacking up there. And uh, a nice white bass run has come through in there. So uh, a lot of good fish on the Rock River. All right, and so, Pat, that'll do it for today. So do you have any uh, final fishing advice for all the people out there? Well, you know, it's going to be beautiful this weekend, and, you know, I'm not sure how many more of these nice days we're going to have, so I'd, I'd just encourage every day, everybody to get out there and, you know, try to get in, get in some good fishing while you can. I was hearing up to 70 this weekend, which, yeah, I think that might be the last nice fishing weekend that we're going to have for a while. Well, I've been uh, talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. If you want to hear an updated fishing report anytime you want, uh, you can call one easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much again for talking with me, and good luck out there. Always a pleasure, Nate. Same to you. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Clearly, contributor Jennifer Fields is a huge fan of the Halloween season. For the past few weeks, spooky things have been at the center of her segments. However, one thing that frightens her may be a delicacy for others. It's spam. 28 years ago, David Pouncey created an international spam carving contest in his garage. This year's competition is the first in-person contest to be held post-lockdown. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields with color commentary by local musician Don Vasa, reaches into her archives to give us her sad attempt at the play-by-play of a spam carving contest held long before COVID-19 ruined everything. I'm here at the annual spam carving competition. We've got about a dozen contestants all ready to carve into their spam, hoping to create a masterpiece. The excitement is palpable. The stench, unbearable. Veteran spam carvers appear to be working on complicated designs. I see a hedgehog in what appears to be a sports car, perhaps a Spamborghini. Rookie carver Katie explains her two-prong approach. Plan A, I'm hoping it's going to be some sort of a... Uh, poodle, a spamoodle or something. <laughs> Plan B? Some type of probably vegetable. <laughs> Are you going to let the spam speak to you at all? Are you going to let yes. the spam have any say? Yes, that's why there has to be a plan B because if <laughs> what I want doesn't work then it's going to be plan B. Don Vasa, he's my color commentator. I've been talking to a few of the contestants and we've got young Katie... Katie's on the rope. She's a newbie. Doesn't know quite what tools. She's coming up with a spamoodle. Well, it's often the the newbies, as you call them, who 
who really make it all happen. You know, they really they bring the new energy. Sometimes it's the seasoned veterans stuck in a rut, can't can't open their eyes to new ways. So it's the it's the very ignorance of people new to their professions that you know gives new ideas to the people that are you know maybe becoming a little too commercial with their art maybe a little bit too confident too cocky yeah it happens now david yes <laughs> what started this actually i heard about something in seattle about three years prior they've been doing it for about 23 years my parents my dad worked for a hormel meat company for 35 years and i grew to hate spam and so I thought that we could somehow make something beautiful out of it in some way. It would be a better world. So, so that's what we're doing here. Are you rebelling? Are you, re are you still rebelling against Hormel, the whole, uh, the whole notion of meat packaging? Or is it just the spam itself that gets you? Just the spam itself. Just the smell and the texture and the, the, the you don't know what you're eating kind of thing. But it, but it's, it holds a very nice form for art, and, and in, some things are some amazingly beautiful things can come of it. So there's not like an official whistle or a gun or anything that starts. <laughs> no, it's just like you can start carving right now. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's the young ones that come out the box strong. Check it out. That's right. That's right. Joe, how long have you been carving span? Oh, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. So you're also new yep. to the competition. Do you have a plan? What's going through your head? Yeah, I think I got a plan. How did you prepare for the day? Oh, I've been I've been doing V ups all morning, preparing several thousand. I, I didn't know. Did you overdo it? Do you think you're gonna have the stamina to carve today? Oh, most definitely. That, that's only half my my usual daily ration of V ups, so that should be good. All right. Good luck to you, Joe. <laughs> Okay, John, you're carving today. Do you have any kind of special plan? What's your game? What's your strategy? How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this uh, about five or six years, approximately. And uh, sometimes I practice and sometimes I don't practice. Actually, the first time I did this, about five or six years ago, I actually won second place by probably beginner's luck. I carved a piano. <clears throat> and... I hadn't, didn't practice it, but it just worked out. But I haven't won anything since, so I'm going to try it again today. So, Chuck, Mary, are you here as spectators thinking about joining the competition? It's pretty stiff. Chuck's a uh, former spam carving champion. <gasps> Check you out. Are you resting on your laurels, Chuck? Are you going to pick up a knife today? I'm, uh, I'm probably going to carve something today, yeah. What would, talk to me about that winning season. How does one prepare no, to be a spam champion? I thought of it on that day. And it was like a collage of uh, emulsified spam and a little food coloring. So I won like a prize in the category of uh, with props since I use food coloring and stuff. Over the years, I've won a num me and my daughter have won a number of prizes. A spam gym bag, spam t-shirt I got the most use out of probably, and the spam costume I uh, wore for one Halloween. Hamas, how long have you been coming to these competitions? Oh, I don't know. It hasn't been 18 years, but quite a few years. It must have been more than 10, I'm sure. What have you seen over those years? What I've seen basically over the years is uh, the imagination of the people who are doing the carving, as well as the current events that show up in the carvings. What are some of the most memorable? One of them, of course, is the... Uh, Fist with the, with the star on it for Madison is one of them. Uh, one was uh, 
of course, uh, Walker, they had one on that. And uh, some of them are very uh, well done or very odd. Okay, now there's just the two of us here. Has anybody ever tried to grease your palm as a judge? Has well, there been any shenanigans? I, well, of course, that's one of the things for a judge, isn't it? Here comes the judge. So, have, you know, do they ply you with alcohol? Are you getting strange phone calls from people you haven't heard from since the last BAM contest, trying to be your friend and stuff? That doesn't happen? No, nothing like that happens. I don't think most of us, they know who the judges are when we come, but they don't know our names or addresses, basically. So, no, we don't. But, you know, they, they we can always have all the drinks, so it's really not them plying us with drinks. But, you know, they kind of say, well, this is pretty good, you should put this kind of high, but you know, we kind of ignore them. So John, in the end you went with the, with the swan. How did you come up with the swan motif? I really have no idea. It just popped into my head. So you think the spam spoke to you? The spam always speaks to you. If it doesn't speak to you, then you really don't know what you're doing. That's the secret. The spam has to speak to you. The time has come for the carvers to put down their knives, fishing line, and beer. The judges are making their way to the table. Who will be this year's winner? Wait, it looks like we have a winner. Joe. Joe and his Scooby-Doo Mystery Meat Machine scored the highest points for best concept, execution, and the very important pun category. That's right, folks. It's a grand spam. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D-Star and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't forget to download the WORT app and... You can subscribe to the local news as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.